scripture for today comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. Will you please stand together for the reading of God's word? Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and distressed because he had heard that you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and only, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards him. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for this passage in your word. We pray that now as Levi expounds upon it, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive it, open our minds to understand it, transform us through the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of yours is. But we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Evergreen. It's good to be back with you all again uh, this morning. One of the most uh, well-known, uh, most famous of the uh, Greek uh, pantheon, the Greek uh, gods and goddesses, is uh, the goddess uh, Aphrodite, excuse me, Aphrodite. She's one of the most well-known of the Greek goddesses in that mythology. She's known as the goddess of beauty and love and passion. And she shows up as a main figure in a lot of the classical work. She shows up a lot in, in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. And as the Roman Empire, as it began to take over the world, they began to syncretize uh, their religion with the Greek mythology and so they took Aphrodite and they identified her with their own goddess of, of Venus. And so Aphrodite or Venus, uh, whatever you call it, she became a mainstay in this Greco-Roman culture. Uh, she was like apple pie and baseball. She was everywhere. Everybody knew about her. Uh, Roman generals, politicians, houses of worship, of course, even theater, even in the household. Uh, she was very well known and beloved by everyone. And so as we come to our text and as we approach this uh, first century world that Paul's living in, we meet an associate of Paul. We meet someone whose parents, without a doubt, held Aphrodite in very high regard because they named their son after her. And his name was Epaphroditus. 
you can hear the similarity between the two names. And we don't know much about this man. We don't know much about Epaphroditus. He's only ever mentioned in this letter to the Philippians. But we can immediately see that there is something special about this man. Because he doesn't seem to be very concerned about his namesake and serving her. But his life is dedicated to serving a different master. And that raises the question for us, how can this pagan man, born in a pagan Greco-Roman household, named after the pagan god of lust and infidelity, how can he be found to be serving the living God, the resurrected king, the Lord Jesus Christ? How can this be? And it's possible because of Advent. It's possible because of the incarnation. Because in Advent, the impossible became possible. When the world was at its darkest moment, light shone forth. When there was no hope at all, when everything looked bleak, that's when God entered into the world. Even this man, born in the deep darkness of the pagan world, even this man bearing the name of a pagan goddess, even this man who was walking in the deep black darkness of a thoroughly pagan society, even he now has seen this great light. Jesus entered the world in its darkest moments, but the darkness was unable to overcome him. And the example of Epaphroditus, he gives us all hope that no matter what our background is, no matter where we come from, our past, or even the names that we bear, none of that can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, his son. And so last week we looked at Timothy's example You'll remember Timothy's example of Christ-like humility. Well, today we're going to consider Epaphroditus's example of Christ-like obedience. Now, to be sure, both of these men had both of those qualities. They were both humble. They were both obedient. But these are the more prominent uh, themes in their respective stories. And so we saw how Paul is desiring to send Timothy back to them, and he himself wants to return to them, but he can't do that right away. He first has to figure out what's going to happen in his situation. And so Paul says that he's going to send Epaphroditus back to them in the meantime. Epaphroditus, he was the one that the Philippians entrusted to bring Paul their financial gift, as well as to minister to Paul's needs. Uh, We see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, Paul mentions this gift and mentions some of the details about it. Uh, But we don't know all the the story behind all of that. And that's okay. What we want to focus on, what we can't miss, is that Epaphroditus, he was called and he was commissioned by the church to be their, uh, their messenger and to minister to Paul's needs. And so now Paul is sending him back. And like he wants to send Timothy, Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with a, a not-so-ulterior motive as well, not just to encourage them, but to be an example uh, to them, another tangible example of a person who is a role model for what the Messiah, what Christ has done. 
for them and how he's been obedient unto the point of death that Paul reminded them back in chapter two. So Paul is using Timothy as an example. Paul is using Epaphroditus as an example. Paul himself, he'll present his own life story as an example, all pointing back to the supreme example of Christ Jesus and that Christ him in chapter two, verses six through 11, that they would all have this mind of Christ, the same Christ who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he's going to do all of this throughout the letter so that when he gets to uh, the personal uh, nitty-gritty application in chapter 4, he's going to tell Yodia and Syntyche to stop their fighting and to agree in the Lord. And he'll tell them that, and they won't have any argument against Paul because they've just heard and seen all these examples of Christ-like humility. But uh, that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because today we want to just focus on Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, this man who does not only provide us a much-needed example of what Christ-like obedience is, but he does more than that. He also points us to Christ, and he's a reminder of what Christ himself has done, of Christ's own obedience. See, if we just stop with Epaphroditus, if we just stop with what we can do, that's, that's never enough. But we always go back to Christ and look at what Christ has done. So that's how I want to spend our time this morning, looking at those, those two things. First, considering the example of Epaphroditus, considering how we can live like him and how we ourselves in this room, we can live lives of obedience to Christ and what that looks like. And then secondly, to look at the reminder that Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus gives us of what Christ has done, Christ's actual obedience on our behalf and why that is so important for us to consider. So those are the two things, the, the practical outworking that we do in our lives and then also the theological foundation of why we do it, how we do it. So in other words, we'll look at the obedience, what that looks like, and then the second is the reason why we strive for that obedience. Well, let's consider that now. Consider first the example of Christ's obedience that Epaphroditus gives us that we must follow. See, right away, the first thing we see from Epaphroditus' example is that anyone, anyone can live for Christ. Epaphroditus, he was named after Aphrodite, but now he lives for Christ. No matter what your background is, no matter who you are, who you were rather, how you grew up, your own family name, if you are in Christ this morning, you are a new creation. And you live for him. So look back at verse 25. Look at these these titles that Paul gives to Epaphroditus. First, Paul says that he is my brother. He is Paul's brother. It's not just a, a jovial, my brother. This is not just a, a friendly way of speaking. This is a spiritual meaning behind it. He truly is Paul's brother in Christ. In the same way that Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, so also Epaphroditus was Paul's brother in the Lord. Jesus Christ, he paid with his own blood to buy Epaphroditus and for Paul. They're both blood-bought brothers and sons of God, and they are family. 
and not just brothers in the Lord, but brothers in arms, as it were. Paul will go on to describe Epaphroditus as his brother and also his fellow worker and fellow soldier. See, Epaphroditus, he worked side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel, and he was a soldier in the cause, in the fight to advance the kingdom of God, especially and specifically in that young, small church in Philippi. He was a soldier for their cause. And we are told that he was also the Philippians' messenger and minister. Paul says, your messenger, referring to the Philippians, your messenger and your minister for my need. This was an official calling. He was an officer in the Philippian church. Uh, That word for messenger, that's the word that we translate as apostle, which is what that word means. Uh, An official uh, called representative of some group. Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ uh, called him on that Damascus road commissioned Paul for his, uh, his tasks to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In the same way, Epaphroditus was called and commissioned to his task as an officer in the Philippian church. Just as your ruling elders in this church were, were called and commissioned, uh, just as myself was called and commissioned uh, by all saints with the laying on of hands as a minister of the gospel, so too Epaphroditus was an official representative and a minister of the church of Christ. He was the messenger of the church elected by that congregation for that specific task. And his task was to bring this gift and to minister to Paul's needs. See, he, his name no longer meant anything to do with Aphrodite, but now his name meant a beloved brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, a messenger, and a minister of Jesus Christ. And that's quite the lifestyle change. We don't know about Epaphroditus, uh, about his conversion experience. It's not recorded for us, but it's certainly likely that he was one of the many pagan and Gentile converts uh, through Paul's ministry. He heard the gospel preached by Paul. He heard the command to uh, repent of his sins and believe in the gospel and to to be baptized. And from that moment on, his life started taking on new meaning. He lived a life of obedience to Christ, to all that Jesus required of him. But that kind of obedience does not always, uh, it's not always easy, is it? The kind of obedience that we're called to do as well. It's not always easy. The Ten Commandments, uh, even the Tenth Commandment that we read this morning and confessed together, and just think of all of them. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Is, is what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, is that easy or is that hard? Is that simple for us to do or does that require sacrifice and giving up of ourselves and bearing our own crosses? See, for all of us, submitting to Christ requires sacrifice and brings discomfort at times. And for Epaphroditus, we see in his example, that almost cost him his life. Three times, Paul tells 
the Philippians and tells us that uh, Epaphroditus went through life-threatening circumstances and from illness. In verse 27, Paul tells him that he was ill almost to the point of death, near to death. And then in verse 30, Paul recounts again that he nearly died for the work of Christ. And then he'll say that he was risking his life to complete what was lacking in their service. Not that they were being negligent, but just the distance between Rome and Philippi, they weren't able to minister to Paul's needs. And so they sent Epaphroditus to fulfill their their obligation and their duty. And in doing so, Epaphroditus risked his own life. We we don't know exactly what the illness was. Some think it could have been a pneumonia or some other disease or illness that he would have contracted in that long journey uh, from Rome to Philippi, those 1,600 miles that we, we talked about last week that, that Paul was going to send Timothy to do as well. But notice what he was willing to do. He was willing to be obedient to Christ and to the calling that the Philippian church had placed on him, the calling God had placed upon him. No matter the risk, no matter what it cost him in his own personal life, he was willing to do that work of Christ, to be obedient, even to the point of death, because of what Christ has done. He nearly died for the work, risking his very own life, not counting his own life as any worth, but giving it all to Christ. Does that remind us of anyone? Does that remind us of anything that we've read and considered earlier in this letter? Well, it should. You see, because our, our, that's our calling too. We are purchased by the blood of Christ. We belong to him, and we are all likewise called to give our lives to him. And so Epaphroditus shows us how we must be obedient to Christ. He gives us the example to follow, but he does so much more than that as well. See, Epaphroditus' life, it reminds us of Christ himself. It points us back to Christ, back to what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished. Why was Epaphroditus so willing to give of himself in this way, to risk his own life, to not count it as any worth at all? It's because he knew everything that Christ had already done for him. He knew how Christ had already obeyed on his behalf. You see, that's the second thing in this passage. And the most important thing that we take away from this passage, the reason why we obey is because Christ obeyed. And we have new life in him. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Though we were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together in Christ. See, this is what the God-man, this is what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Epaphroditus knew this, and so he modeled his life after the example of Christ, the very same example that Paul gives us 
And that beautiful Christ hymn, I mention it so much because it's, it is the focal point of this letter. It's the focal point of what we celebrate in Advent. It's the focal point of the entire Bible. This example that we have of Christ in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. You see, Christ humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Epaphroditus, having this same mind of Christ himself, was likewise obedient to the needs and wishes of the Philippian church to bring Paul their money gift and to minister to Paul's needs on behalf of them, even though it almost cost him his life. But he would have been willing to die in the service of his very own Lord, who himself died for his people. And so, Paul says, Epaphroditus is worthy of much honor, just as Christ himself has been honored with a name above every name. And so as we continue this Advent season, we must not only strive for our own obedience, which is so important, we must not neglect that, but we must always remember and rest in the finished work of Christ who was obedient on our behalf. As a, a Martin Luther uh, once said in, in a sermon, he says, you must first possess heaven and salvation before you can do good works. Works never merit heaven. Heaven is conferred purely of grace. You see, our works do not merit us heaven. That's not why we obey. That's not why we do good works. In his life and in his death, Christ has earned heaven for us. The life of obedience we now live is a life of gratitude and of thanksgiving for everything that Christ has done. And that's why we must always go back to what Christ has done. If, if I only preach this morning, if I only preached your obedience and my obedience and, and preach what, what we must do, I would be woefully negligent of the text and of Scripture and of the truths of Scripture. It is Christ's obedience that gives us life, that gives us purpose, that gives us hope. And so we must always go back to him. Christ earned it all in, in his perfect and absolute obedience. Theologians have, uh, throughout church history, um, the reformers uh, taught this, but it goes back uh, in the Middle Ages and to uh, Augustine as well. They've, they've made this helpful distinction between Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience. And not that Christ has two obediences, as it were, but these are two aspects of what Christ has done for us. And it's important for us to recognize these. When we say that Christ, uh, Christ had a passive obedience, we do not mean that he was, uh, uh, that he was lazy that he was unassertive or that he let people walk over him. That's not what we mean. What we mean when we say that is, is it's more associated with the word passion, with Christ's passion, with his suffering for us. You see, Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That was Christ's passive obedience. But we sometimes only think about that in terms of the cross, but his suffering existed long before then. 
One theologian writes that Christ's sufferings for the sins of others began from the moment of his incarnation as a human being. For he did not deserve the least suffering that touches every human being in this fallen world. Sometimes we don't think of it that way, but it's true. That's why our catechism teaches that Christ's humiliation, the incarnation is part of that. His humiliation consists partly at the beginning with his incarnation because God himself took on mortal flesh. He tasted our sufferings. He knew what it was like to grow hungry, to be tired, to be thirsty, to face rejection and abandonment and betrayal. But he was not passive in the sense that he was helplessly acted against, but he was in control the whole time. And that's all the more reason to glorify him because he chose to suffer and he walked the road purposely, bearing his cross up the hill. And John 10, 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. That was Christ's passive, suffering obedience to the point of death on our behalf. But that's not the only way that Christ was obedient for us. Christ's obedience has another aspect to it, which we refer to when we talk about his active obedience. And to help us understand uh, that aspect, it can be helpful to ask a question. So I'll ask you this question. Is it enough that Christ suffered and died for your sins? Is that enough? Kind of sounds like a trick question. You kind of think... I think, yeah, I think that's right. Of course, that's enough. Well, it's not meant to be a trick question, but it helps us understand the importance of Christ's active obedience because Christ's death on the cross, his blood that was shed, that was for the remission of our sins. In effect, that wiped our slate clean. But if that is all that happened, we'd be brought back to a a net zero. We'd be brought back to where we started. And then what would happen? Well, we would immediately mess it all up. We would transgress the law like we have from the very beginning because we're sinners. And we'd, we'd be back in the exact same predicament that we have found ourselves to be in now. That is the good news of Christ's perfect obedience, both his active and his passive obedience. Not only did Christ suffer and die on behalf of our sins to satisfy God's judgment, the penalty of our sins has been paid. That's his passive obedience. But Christ also lived a life of perfect and perpetual obedience to God's law. That's his act of obedience. Every breath that Jesus took, every thought, every step, every word, every action, all of it was in full accord to God's holy and perfect law. He was perfectly righteous. 
And that righteousness is now credited to our account. Where the first Adam failed, he did not live a life of perfect and perpetual obedience, even though that was the duty that God required of him as his creator. Where that first Adam failed and all of us fell in him, the second and the last Adam obeyed throughout his whole life. He accomplished what we were never able to do. And the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the gospel is that that life of perfect righteousness and obedience is credited to our account. And that's why we say in our catechism, we say, what is justification? Justification is the act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ as imputed to us and received by faith alone. Or as the Heidelberg puts it, I put this in my sermon before I even had the bulletin, but we already recited it today, this morning. Heidelberg, question 60. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which which Christ has fulfilled for me. Our God is an amazing God. There's no God like our God. There's no religion in the world that preaches this kind of gospel. The offer of uh, free grace of the gospel. Christ has accomplished all on our behalf. It's this reality that the the great Princeton theologian uh, and the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, he said this, He says, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He wrote that in a telegram. Uh, That's for the young people here. That was like an email before email existed. I don't even know how it worked myself. But he wrote that in a telegram shortly before his death in 1937. That was on his mind as he was approaching the end of his life the active obedience of Christ for him that gave him hope even as he neared the end of his life. See, that's what we learn from this passage. That's what Epaphroditus reminds us of, not simply giving us a role model to to model our lives after, to look up to, but he points us back to Christ whose life and death were marked by perfect obedience, and that obedience gives us life and life everlasting. Because of Christ's obedience, we are new creations. Our past no longer defines us. Even a name like Epaphroditus that connects him to some pagan god, even that name now means something else because of what Christ has done. That name means a fellow brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, Even he could be a minister of the gospel in the church of his Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christ's obedience has accomplished for you. Your past no longer defines you. You're defined by another name. 
You're defined in God's eyes by what Christ has done and what Christ has accomplished for you. That's the beauty. That's the glory of Advent. When the world was at its darkest, when there was no hope at all, when we were all walking in that darkness, we have seen that great light. Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, he has come, and his name means Savior, and he's accomplished that salvation completely for his people. We don't earn it. We don't do anything to merit it. We simply receive it, and we rest upon him alone. When we could accomplish nothing at all, Christ has accomplished it for us. So are you resting in Christ this morning? Rest in his obedience. There's no hope without it. Let's pray to him now. Gracious and most merciful Heavenly Father, how you love the world in such a way that you sent your only begotten Son. You sent him into the world. He humbly obeyed took on human flesh with all of our infirmities, tasted all of our sufferings, and even walked the path that led to the cross. He was obedient unto death, and now we have life in him. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would never look to any other source for our comfort and for our hope and for our joy and for our salvation, but that we would look to you alone and rest upon what you have done for us, Would you do that in our lives? By your spirit, would you help us to trust and to lean into you all our days? We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.